Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. All righty. What are we talking about this week? How to have a healthy relationship with God. <clears throat> I will admit that this week has, um, as I'm paying attention to what my kind of spirit or what, what, how I'm experiencing as I do the study and I do some preparation as a chance to have an a opportunity to speak to you guys, um, I think this topic is, there's a level of reverence around it. First off, I think it would be fairly appropriate to say that if you're here expecting me to tell you, here's the one right way to have a relationship with God, you might be disappointed. Um, there are so many varieties of how to experience God, how to interact with God, how to um, hear God, talk to God, listen to God, all these things that me kind of saying this is the right way and everything else is wrong probably would not work out. So that's not what we're going to be doing today. But I do think there are some elements to, well, that'd be the same as saying, you know, um, because my wife is one way and I am one way, that this is exactly how every romantic relationship should look like based upon this one model probably doesn't work out real well for every other relationship. So, but there are some principles that I think can be expanded throughout kind of any kinds of relationship that you have with a God. Now, one of the things that I've encountered to come across when it comes to having a relationship with God um, is the, we'll call it just the practical difficulties. How do you have a relationship with someone that you can't see, touch, hear audibly, on a regular basis at least, um, um, sit next to, have a cup of coffee with? How do you just interact with a God that way? And um, can you even interact with a God that way? So we're going to kind of take apart some of that and see what might happen with that. The other piece um, about this week that I think has a sense of reverence to it is I don't think it's a very good night if all I do is download information to you guys. I don't think most people need more information. Yes, I think information is helpful, but I would hope that you guys get to experience God in, in the hour and a half that we get to sit together and be together. And so again, how to orchestrate that in a respectful, appropriate, healthy way those are some big questions, and I take it very seriously. I don't want to treat it flippantly. I don't want to try to um, coerce or, or um, manipulate some sort of emotional experience. Does that make sense? But I don't want you to go away tonight just hearing information. So, with all of that as kind of a, a disclaimer at the beginning of, of tonight's kind of thing, um, would you be willing to try a little experiment with me? <laughs> then here's what I'd like to do, if we can. Um, 
I'd like to read you something first because in all reality, again, as I wrestle, wrestled with this, at least for me personally, one of the best ways that I got to know God, not just know information about God, but got to know Him, how to relate to Him, was in um, the Chronicle of Narnia series, the God that is presented in those series is a God I'd like to know. It is profound. And so if I had my way, we would just sit here and pass the book around and let people read it and let people hear those stories and um, get, to know those, get to know those characters. But since we can't spend the whole time reading it, I'd like to start with one small section, please. Give me a minute. <laughs> and now, said Lucy, do please tell us what happened to Mr. Tumnus. Tumnus is a fawn who was captured by the White Witch. Ah, oh, that's bad, said Mr. Beaver, shaking his head. That's a very, very bad business. There's no doubt he was taken off by the police. I got that from a bird who saw it done. But where's he been taken to, asked Lucy. Well, they were heading northward when, the, when they were last seen, and we all know what that means. No, we don't, said Susan. Mr. Beaver shook his head in a very gloomy fashion. I'm afraid it means they were taking him to her house, he said. But what'll they do to him, Mr. Beaver, gasped Lucy. Well, said Mr. Beaver, you can't exactly say for sure, but there's not many taken in there that ever come out again. Statues. All full of statues, they say it is, in the courtyard and up the stairs and in the hall. People she's turned into stone. But, Mr. Beaver, said Lucy, can't we, I mean, we must do something to save him. It's too dreadful, and it's all on my account. I don't doubt you'd save him if you could, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver, but you've no chance of getting into that house against her will and ever coming out alive. Couldn't we have some stratagem, said Peter? I mean, couldn't we dress up as something or pretend to be, oh, peddlers or anything or, or, or watch till she's gone out or, oh, hang it all, there must be some way. This fawn saved my, sister's own, my sister at his own risk, Mr. Beaver. We can't just leave him to be, to be, to have that done to him. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move, Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan, asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It's, it is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do, and more I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. 
But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I am to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. How many of you would like to meet that? That'd be a good way to spend an evening. I would like to take a few minutes to get our hearts prepped, but we're going to do it a little bit differently tonight. Would that be okay? Okay. Take your books, put them down, notebooks, pens, paper, all that stuff. Have your hands free. And if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and close your eyes again. Take a deep breath for me. This simple room in southeast Portland has become a sacred place for many of you. It has for me. What you get to do on a Monday night is profound. It's beyond more than just bricks and mortar around busyness, around just something to do with an hour and a half of your time. For those whose burdens are heavy, your invitation is to leave all of those things at the door. You don't have to deal with any of those things right now. Again, you can't really fix any of them for the next hour and a half or so. So you, your invitation is to just let them sit, and you'll pick them up when you leave here. But for now, you don't have to carry them. Notice in your body where any anxiety or fear or weight is being carried. Your chest, your shoulders, your neck, your eyes, your stomach, your hands, your legs. Where is your fear, where is your anxiety resting? Our fears, our weaknesses are physical, they're not just mental. I'd like you to take your hands and place them on your legs, palms up, please. And then the question I'm going to ask is, how far away does God seem to you right now? If you don't know what I mean, I want you just to pay attention to the person next to you. You can kind of just feel their presence next to you and you can kind of determine, okay, it feels like they're close or it feels like they're, you know, six inches or a foot or however far away. 
Pay attention to just feeling their presence first. And after you've kind of located them, I want you to notice me. Where do you feel my presence? How far away do I seem to you? Just notice that perception. There's no right or wrong answer. It's a very subjective kind of experience. But then the question is, how far away does God feel to you? For some, it feels like he's in this room. For others, it feels like he's a million miles away or anywhere in between. Just notice that perception. If you can see God or as you see God, what expression do you see on his face? Again, don't try to make it up. There isn't any right answer. There isn't any specific thing. But as you see him, what would be the very first expression you see on his face as he is putting his attention on you? As you're looking at him, what would you say his mood or his attitude towards you is? And then as you see him, what does his expression stir inside of you? How do you experience it? For those who can find him, who, those who are aware of him, can you invite him to take one step closer or many steps closer? Can you invite him to approach you, to be open to having him come closer? He doesn't tend to force his way onto you. He pursues us relentlessly, but he never forces himself. So wherever you sense him, can you invite him just to take a couple steps closer? Is that easy to do? Is that uncomfortable to do? Just notice how you react or respond to that. What are the emotions that show up with that? I know for some of you, that's an uncomfortable experience. You've spent much of your time and energy trying to stay as far away from God. But tonight, can you let him take just a couple steps closer? And as he's taken a couple steps closer, and you see the expression on his face, what do you think he would want to say to you? It's a very personal conversation. It's a very individual conversation. But what would you hear him say to you? What do you need to hear him say to you? And then finally, what would you want to say to him? You don't need to make something up. You don't need to fill that space with just because you need to answer the question. I want you to pay attention to your spirit, to your heart. What does your heart cry out to him as? What would you want to say back to him?
while you're kind of aware of that space, while you're letting your body be relaxed, I'd like you to take a deep breath and let your body still stay just heavy at the moment. And then the only thing I want you to do is open your eyes. Let your body still stay relaxed. For some of you, this might be the closest to God you've been in a very long time. For the others, this might be very familiar. Make this yours. Again, let your body be heavy. And just look around at the other people in the room here. Let yourself be seen. This is a safe place. Everyone in the room here is in the same situation. You don't have to be best friends because you look at them. But allow yourself just to be seen. Okay? One more deep breath. And then kind of stretch your bodies, move your hands a little bit, move your toes. We'll kind of let our bodies come right back into this spot. I'm intentionally going to go a cappella tonight. I don't have any videos. I don't have any things like that because we're going to try to treat this in a little different way, okay? Now, as we get started, um, for those that found that exercise difficult even to get your minds wrapped around, okay, that's a fairly experiential kind of way of relating to God. And for some... Um, again, because there's multiple ways of relating to him, some might relate to him in what we'll call a more intellectual way. Um, you read about him, you understand him, you have a cognitive understanding of him, but having any sort of emotional connection or something like that is just difficult for you. I'm not going to say that that is wrong, I'm not going to say that that is bad, but for those who might have a difficult time even conceiving of, of relating to God in the way that we just did, I want you to consider a couple things as kind of a foundation here. For many individuals, they do not perceive God as a person. They perceive God as a force. They perceive God as the universe. They perceive God as the thing all around them or energy or, you know, all sorts of things like that. When, when you perceive God in those kind of nebulous terms, then then considering having an actual relationship with him, like you would relate to another human being, talking to him, listening to him, um, being close, you know, feeling his presence close, that is very, very foreign. And so, again, I don't know where each of you are individually, and I'm going to assume that we're all across the spectrum here, but for those, again, who have a hard time getting their minds wrapped around that, that might be one of the reasons why, is because of your actual um, understanding or perception of how just the very nature of God. Does that make sense? Um, and it would be important to realize where I'm coming from in some of this, because I want you to tell you my bias, because I obviously come from one, and I do it unashamedly, okay? I do believe that God is a person, okay? He is a being. He is not a human being, but he is a person who has personality, unique personality. Does that make sense again? And that his personality can be known and understood and connected with. 
Now, even just getting your mind around some of this is sometimes fairly tricky and um, a little confusing. Um, how do I want to put it? Here's how I would put it. My kids have asked me, like I think all kids do, Dad, do you believe in aliens? That's an interesting conversation, isn't it? Because depending upon where you live and all sorts of things, do you believe in aliens? You know, spaceships and green men and big eyeballs and all sorts of other things like that. And I always answer my kids, I absolutely believe in aliens. How about that? That weird? I think as believers, we have to believe in aliens, and here's why. Definition of an alien is an, is an individual or a creature who is not born or occupies this planet. Would that make sense? And I believe, according to scripture, that there are creatures that have been created and occupy space and time that have interacted on this planet and have the ability to do things that you and I couldn't come anywhere near doing. Okay, what are they called? Angels. Angels. Or? Aliens. Or an aliens, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Angels or the opposite of angels are? which are actually angels who are fallen. Fair enough. They have been created by a God, by the God, and they have the ability, again, to do things that we can't conceive of. Scripture has lots of stories about how angelic beings have interacted on this planet. Now, if you think about that, if you get your mind wrapped around that, and again, I wish we could just spend some time trying to, to just grasp the gravity of that. Think X-Files. Think all of the cool stuff of sci-fi genre and everything else like that. And there are these creatures who have these special abilities to read your mind or to know this information or to instantly disappear or to change their, their, their shape or their form. All that stuff that's in sci-fi, which if you're like me, I'm hoping I never ever run into someone like that and that there isn't some weird strange conspiracy that's trying to, you know, uh, supplement the government and, you know, take my kids and turn them into cottage cheese and things like that. Um, but there are actual beings, as real as you and I, who may very well be walking around Portland right now. For all I know, okay, for all I know, could actually be sitting in this room right here. Look around again. Make sure you know the person who's sitting next to you. How well do you know them? Do they, you know? Yeah. Are they? And there is this whole world that we can't see with our, with our limited mortal eyeballs that only see a certain spectrum of light because that's the way we are created. There are individuals and creatures and, and beings who occupy this space. It is a very real phenomenon. That should just blow your mind and, and, and you know, make you lose sleep at night because it's just sometimes freaky. We think as human beings that we and our perceptions and our ideas and our perspectives are kind of the pinnacle. And I think that when we wake up and we find out the reality of the entire universe and the entire God's plan, we're going to find out, oh, 
that was a little biased of us, a little pompous of us. Would you, would you agree or disagree? I think we have such a small, limited amount. And so people who end up having a relationship with God recognize I have only a small amount of information, and I'm going to have to relate to God not on my terms, not on the way that I think God should act or behave, but I'm going to have to relate to him on his terms. And again, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, well, Scripture says that he is a spirit. Now, we could take a whole lot of time figuring out what a spirit is, but let's just do a down-and-dirty definition. I believe a spirit is simply something that has an essence, a personality, a individuality, but does not have to occupy a mortal body. Can we just agree on that rough definition? We could you know, get into semantics and all of that. But that is, in essence, what a spirit is. When you think of ghosts and all those other things, that's kind of the, the genre of all that as well, right? People who don't have a physical corporeal, corporeal body and are able to do you know, different things. God is spirit. And so we have to understand that we have to relate to him on those terms, not on our terms. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be missing out on some essence of the relationship. Um, individuals, I believe, who are more, I'll use the word sensitive. Individuals who are more sensitive to their own personal spirits, who are able to know their feelings and their thoughts and their emotions and are able to be more connected in that way, I believe have a, have a greater potential or propensity of being able to communicate with God who is spirit. Okay? That makes sense? Because it's, think of it this way, it's kind of like a dialect or a language. If you're in, if you're in Spain, you probably should know how to speak Spanish, right? If you're in Greece, you should probably know how to speak Greek. If you are married, you should probably learn how to speak woman. Okay, because it's a tough dialect and means certain things. When you are relating to a being that is spirit, you should probably learn how to speak that dialect. Does that make sense again? And it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be um, restrictive to people who are, are um, all touchy-feely, fuzzy, you know, lock hands and sing kumbaya kind of people. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who have a softer heart, who are willing to or understand that there is more to them than just their cognitive, rational, task-oriented, accomplishing kinds of mode. Again, that's my definition of a spiritual person, is someone who says, how I do things the way I interact, my motivations, those are just as important as what I do. If I'm going to be a plumber, I'm going to be a, a plumber that is loving. If I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be the most compassionate, kind lawyer. If I'm going to be a motorcycle mechanic, how I do things is important. Now, just because he's spirit doesn't mean he can't talk to us in physical ways as well. He did that a lot, okay? God shows up in amazing ways. And I, again, if I could hit rewind on the VCR and watch some of these scenes, man, that would, that would just be awesome. We're talking about Moses and the burning bush. We're talking pillars of fire, pillars of salt, talking donkeys to Balaam. 
That would have just been a blast to see. Why do you keep hitting me, numbskull? Can't you see? And what was in front of him? Angel, Angel with a burning, flaming sword. Just killer. Um, disembodied hands writing on the wall. Many, many Tekel Parsons, right? Saying, too bad, you've, you've been weighed, time's up, the Medes and the Persians are coming to take your, take your kingdom. Angelic hosts, the lowest of the low, the, the people that society forgot, that's who God shows up to. Anyone watched the um, Falling Stars the last couple nights this last week? Kind of a, I only got to see a couple. My wife stayed up all night watching some of them. Apparently some of them were pretty good. Can you imagine just the entire sky opening up and you see things that your eyes don't normally see, which I would argue are there probably a good portion of the time anyway. It's like a highway up there. People just go back and forth, get into places they got to do and things like that. Their eyes open up and the angelic hosts sing, now is the time. The Messiah's on earth right now. He's just been born right over there. You know, head over the hill, around the, around the wall, past the sheep. Yeah, that's where he is, right there. Man, now here's the amazing thing that, again, if, if, if we had time and if I was a pastor, um, I could probably do more justice to this and, and, and other pastors have done way better on this than I ever could, but all of that is pre-Acts, pre the Holy Spirit showing up and indwelling believers. Here's what happens. Christ shows up. He dies for us. He hangs out for 40 days. He ascends, and all of his followers are hanging out going, what do we do now? And all of a sudden, God shows up. Tongues of fire above their head. And now, every believer, every believer doesn't have to ask God to fill them. Every believer has the promise that says, I am going to be with you all the time. I'm going to live inside of you so that we can have a conversation as much as you want. Imagine that. Imagine, again, if we want to think of it in a spousal term, saying, okay, now that we're married, I, I am the best, the most loving, the most appropriate spouse you can ever have. And all I want to do is do wonderful things for you. And I'm never, ever going to leave you. I'm going to follow you around. What? That's not a bad gig, okay? I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. And that's what every believer gets, is God in person shows up and says, I'm going to hang out with you, and I want you to be able to hear. I want you to be able to listen. I want you to be able to understand. Again, this isn't ethereal. This isn't conceptual. This is reality. I don't understand it, and again, I can't do justice to it, but this is how God works with us. This is the kind of relationship he has with us. Why? That's a whole other question. Don't ask that question next week, okay? Just please don't ask it, because I don't, I don't know why. The almighty, all-powerful, omniscient God would say, I'm going to hang out with you. I wouldn't do it. Man. I believe that you can hear him, but I don't think that you can hear him in the ways that our mortal bodies 
are used to hearing things. I believe that you can feel him, but not in the ways that our mortal bodies can feel him. I believe it happens if you are pursuing it and are sensitive to it. Um, again, the biggest question is, if you are sensitive to it, if you're open to that, um, how does that work? We're going to save that to the end and see if we can put some nuts and bolts onto that. Think of it this way, too. Um, again, my kids, when they are young, they ask for the things that all kids want to ask for. You know, the, the traditional thing is, Dad, can I have a pony? Okay, my kids never really ask for a pony, but Daddy, can I have a pony? If I don't buy my children a pony, does it mean that I don't love them? What does it mean? My yard's too small, I like that. I don't need it, or they don't need it. What else? Cost too much. Cost too much. They eat a ton. Yep. They do other things after they eat, yes. They're not ready for it. So why wouldn't I buy them a pony? It's a good thing. Ponies are fun. They're, they're great to have around. Yeah, they take work, but why wouldn't I buy them a pony? They might get hurt. Yes, they might get hurt. They also might have fun, okay? So that's true. Give me a broad reason why I, as a parent, am not going to buy my children a pony. Not ready for responsibility. What else? I don't want one. Because <laughs> who, who ends up taking care of the stinking pony? It's the same with puppies and kittens, yeah. I don't think it really fit in your parenting plan. It wouldn't fit in my parenting plan, yes. That's actually pretty close, Okay. Bingo, bingo. And can a child in a childlike mind understand that? Because all they go is pony equals fun, fun equals I'm happy, and, and that's all that really matters, right? But in a parenting role, I have to look out for their best interest overall. And so me, in my love for them, is probably not going to get them everything they ask for. And, and with their limited experience, they don't like that answer, but... Am I going to ask them to be okay with that answer? Yeah, yeah. We are children. We are children to God's, you know, parenting of us. Which takes us to kind of the third point here. Um, the number one model that Scripture uses to, to talk about having a relationship with God is a familial model. It isn't a business model. It isn't a contractual model. It isn't a slave or, or, or employee model. It is a family model. God is our what? Father. Heavenly Father. We are his children. children. Um, you are my Sister. or brother. brother. It's the familial terms. And here's again, you don't have to raise your hands here. But the concept of adoption is just profound. In, in Romans, uh, Romans 8, it talks about this idea of um, being adopted. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear. Again, that just says, right now we're living in fear. We feel like slaves. Slaves to what? In the context, it's talking about slaves to sin. So he says, because you are feeling like slaves, and you're trapped, and you're stuck, and you can't get out of this. 
I'm going to do something different for you. I'm going to come along, and I am going to, it says, you did not receive the spirit of leading you into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Does anyone know what Abba, Father translates into? Daddy. Daddy is a unbelievably familiar, intimate, personal term. I actually have heard some people say it's disrespectful to talk to God in those terms. In fact, a lot of other um, religious models say you can't talk to God that way. It's disrespectful. It's inappropriate. It's not that kind of God. It's a God you fear. It's a God who expects all sorts of behaviors from us, but he's not a, uh, he's not a daddy. He's not an Abba father. But if we look at scripture again, this is the relationship he wants to have with you. He says, I want to be your daddy. And I'm going to adopt you so that, so that, what? The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I've got four children. Love every one of my children. But... What kind of father would I be if I say, kids, I love you, and I am infinitely rich. I have, I got money you guys are set for the rest of your lives, okay? And because you are my children, I, you are heirs. So when I die, guess what? Guess what you get? Everything. This is yours. And I'm glad. I'm glad to pass it on to you. But because because we have so much, because, because God has blessed us so much, there's this small boy, and he's living on the streets, and he has no one who loves him. What do you say? I'm going to go, and I'm going to find him. I'm going to invite him to become part of our family. I would like to adopt him. And when I adopt him, that doesn't mean that he just gets a bed in the basement, Okay? It's not the little princess, you know, Shirley Temple and living up in the attic and all those sad little stories and the songs that she does. It's not that. It is, he gets his own room. He gets, he gets everything that you guys get. And when I die, he gets, a, he gets his portion. Now, what does he have to do to earn that? Who said nothing? Why in the world would I do that if he doesn't have to earn it? Why would I do that? Does that make sense? To me, it does. To you, it does. Because why? Because he's the father. It's what? Love. It's called what? Love. love. I can't. I, I, I wish you could just take everything out of my head right here and just kind of soak it into you guys because. This doesn't make sense. In the world we live in, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't how it's supposed to work, is it? We're supposed to be good little boys and girls. We're supposed to earn our way. We're supposed to be performing just right. These are all the things we keep telling ourselves so that we can be worthy of his love. And we've got it so backwards. And, and again, you guys don't have a backwards I got a backwards just as much as you guys got a backwards. And, 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 it, and, it, and it frustrates the daylights out of me because it gets in the way. It gets in the way of being able to just finally go, I'm in. 
I can enjoy this. I can be at peace finally. That's why God actually wants relationship with us, so that you can have peace, so that you can rest finally. Here's the caveat to all of this. And this is how it comes full circle. The way we perceive God, the way that we see his face in that exercise we did early this evening, the way that we either allow him to be close or expect him to be far away is set by the way that we experienced our fathers or our parents. Isn't that amazing? What we interacted with our earthly parents, those parental units that are supposed to unconditionally, because what is an infant? What is a brand? Man, I was walking through Target the other day, and I swear this little infant that was having that, just that screechy little cry that only newborns can do, you know what I'm talking about? I swear this thing was, you know, straight from the hospital to Target, and they're getting whatever they needed to get at Target. And you just walk by, and it's like, wow, look at that. It's, it's this little human being, okay? What can, that, what can that little human being do that deserves love? Anything? Absolutely nothing. It is purely innocent and helpless. And all a parent can do is say, because you are mine, I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to choose... I'm going to choose to be highly inconvenienced because of you. I'm going to lose sleep over you. I'm going to get all sorts of fluids and substances on me that no human being should get fluids or substances on them because it just is nasty stuff. And I'm going to, it's going to cost me so much money to, you know, get you raised to 18 and out the door. And why in the world would I choose to take on all of this stuff? No. Love. That's why. And again, that, that experience here shapes what our relationship here with God is supposed to be. And back to the tragedy of this is because I know that I, as a parent, would love to have a do-over. There's some things that I wish that I could just change because it's like, well, I blew that. You know, don't save for college, save for counseling so that they can just, you know, take care of that. What is your experience, what is your, call it a set point, what is your set point for expectations around family relationships? What was your relationship with your siblings, your brothers or your sisters? What was your relationship with your parents? Would you want to be close? Would you even call them daddy? Or would you call them other things? I don't know your stories. And for some of you, Again, it's easier to conceive of a God who loves us in that way. And for others, this is actually one of the things that becomes so unbelievably painful in conceiving of a God this way. Because it's like, didn't work out well over here. Why in the world would I even consider doing that over here? That's just dumb. I mean, that's dumb to open myself up to that. You're not going to get me twice. You know, fool me once, shame on me. You, fool me twice, shame on me. <laughs> Something like that. So what was, your, what was your relationship with your parents? How did that set your set point? Thoughts or questions about any of that? 
Say again. That set point when we're young is very difficult to get past. Yes, it is. But it's also very worth it, even though it takes almost a couple decades or a half a century. But when you get to that point, it's just like you feel like, I can't believe I based my opinion or self-worth from when I was 15. And we are free to, we're just free to be who you are. It's it's awesome. Is it in a? It doesn't feel right, or you feel guilty because you have this freedom that that you haven't earned, yeah. per se. Yeah. So, but that set point is very difficult to get past. Isn't it amazing how we operate now as adults based upon the rules that we had as children? Yes. Sometimes those rules we learned when we were two or three years old. Sometimes we learn them at, you know, five, six, fifteen, somewhere in there. 30, yeah, and a little pop quiz. How do we change those set points again? We already talked about that earlier. Very nice, the front row is a smart row again. Say it real loud. Experiences. Experiences. We can't actually conceive of it and actually change. The, the conceiving has to then be followed with an experience. You have to interact with someone who says, even though I know your story, even though you might be uncomfortable with this, I'm still going to pursue you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to interact with you in, in whatever way that and is. I'm going to pay that part through my children, being honest with I, I have adult children, and it's awesome to be able to share my experience with them in hopes that they will. Yeah. To, you know. Yeah. But through all those, um, I wish I had a couple of those myself, but I just have to be honest and, and go through it. Yeah. If there's one thing that I, again, wish I could just suck out of my brain and implant it into your guys' heart, that process of changing the set point is not easy. Don't let anyone ever tell you it is. It is painful. It is real. It is scary. It is uncomfortable. And it is worth every minute. Because we start to be we start to actively redeem our own lives. And when we do that, we tend to redeem our children's lives, our grandchildren's lives, our neighbors' lives, people who come and just hang out with us for a while. We change their lives when we are changed. So, Tyler. Yeah, remember the one week that I wish we could spend the entire series on is how you view yourself? It's that, here's, the, here's what I want and need level, but here's what I believe about myself level. I want to get better, but I really don't believe I can change. I want to be closer to God, but I really don't believe he wants to be close to me. You have to change the belief level, and what changes the belief level? Experiences. <laughs> Experiences again. That's, that is the level that has to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That's a fantastic question. Um, 
debating how much I want to answer that question because I think we could talk a lot about that. Here's my short answer, and then we could probably talk more about it last next week if you really want to take it apart a little bit more. Um, if, adult, if as adults we recognize that our view of God is set by our experience with our parents, then if we have an interaction with a small child, guess what we are to them? We are God to them. We literally are. We, you know, think of how children process stuff. Parents can do anything they want to, and they are infinitely powerful. They can literally take the life of a small child. And so we are God personified, shall we say, and how we treat them, not on a intellectual level, okay, they're not conceiving of here's what Trinity means and here's what sanctification means and here's what redemption means. They don't, they don't do it in that way. They do it on a purely experiential, back to little kids of, ooh, look at the sparkly lights, and they just enjoy it rather than trying to understand it. I believe children actually have a greater capacity to understand, to experience God without the distraction of trying to understand God. Does that make sense? I'm going to say that again. Kids have a greater capacity to experience God without trying to understand Him. Hello? What? Help the guy out. Um, and, and so if we want, if kid, kids are purely experiencing them, then there is no greater sacred privilege than being a parent. I, I believe that. And if we, again, go back to the, to the biblical or scriptural model, um, adoptive parents, foster parents, those are the people that when they understand what they are doing, they get to be a redemptive God to these wounded children. People who are making a million dollars a year or those people who make nothing a year, I think when it comes to God's economy, my goodness, one's very rich and one has the rewards now. Okay? So... Yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but any other questions before we kind of move on to the things that get in the way of relationship with God? A couple things there. The clock disappeared. There was a nice clock on that wall, on that light, and it disappeared. 8.33. Okay, we're doing good. Any other questions real fast before we move on? Everyone, take another deep breath. Stand up for a minute, please. We're just going to move here. <sighs> Hands all the way, all the way, as tall as you can get them. Stretch. Oh. Bring them down to your side. Just lean to your right. See how many people know the right from their left? Very good. Gotcha. Go to the left. Oh, stretch out the other side. Oh, go back. The room warmed up, didn't it? <laughs> All right, go ahead and sit down again. Ah, oh, we should have played a fun little game right there. That would have been fun. Maybe at the end. Okay. 
Um, things that get in the way of a relationship with God. These are kind of the um, distractions or the reason why uh, people might say, I can't or I don't want to have a relationship with God. Um, first primary thing, which happens a lot on kind of a practical level, um, is we oftentimes have other gods before the God, before the person that we're supposed to have a relationship with. Um, uh, I showed you the book last week, um, Tim Keller, Reasons for God. Again, highly recommend it. Profound book. Um, again, it's basically uh, C.S. Lewis on steroids. It's uh, very, very good apologetics. And it's designed for people who are both skeptics, who are wondering, what is this whole Christian thing about? I don't get it. I doubt it. As well as people who say, nope, I, I get it. I understand. But I need to understand it in a deeper level. So if you want to have a, a, a book that kind of takes you to that next level of understanding. Um, and I think through that understanding comes connection with God. At least it happened for me that way. Um, spend some time in there. So Tim Keller says, everyone gets their identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. We don't live in a vacuum. We have to gain our sense of identity, our sense of worth based upon something, right? And his definition of sin is finding an identity that is anything other than God. Most people think of sin primarily as breaking divine rules, but the first of the Ten Commandments are, have no other gods before me. Reasons for God. A little play on words, because it's kind of about reasons, reasoning. When we are doing what we are designed to do, which is be in relationship with God, to have affinitas with God, we find our identity primarily in Him. Small children, how do they create their identity first? With, our, with the parents, right? And then they create their identity where? With themselves or actually friends, um, siblings, other individuals. That's how they get their identity. And then they start to identify within themselves as we get a little bit older. And then, huh, where do people tend to find their identity? Okay, works one. What else? Relationships, yep. Social, TV. Their kids, yep. Looks, appearance. Um, consumer goods, do I got enough stuff? Yep, I got enough toys. Um, some people derive their sense of identity off of being good enough. They just say, I have done enough. I've done enough nice things. I've acted in good enough ways, and therefore I'm a good person. Whenever we use any of those things to create our identity, we have ended up um, substituting our identity location in God to something else which is temporal and passing and pathetic, actually. Our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify it. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think of ourselves as highly irreligious. It's the um, guys, again, who 
worship on Sundays in front of the big screen TV, watching whatever team is their team. And they do the face paint and the, you know stuff on their stomachs and the right kind of beer, because the commercial says that's the kind of beer they're supposed to have, and they have season tickets to whatever. They, in essence, deify that. Fair enough. Now, again, nothing wrong with sports, as long as your whole identity doesn't make it or break it on you know, what happens in the Super Bowl. And for some people, it does. Fantasy football, that can happen. Think also, <laughs> high school reunion. Oh, boy. What's one of the most popular questions when you show up to your high school reunion and you're talking with someone that you haven't seen in 20 years and they have, they have this image in your head about them and they have this image about you in their head and what's kind of the one status question everyone asks? What do you do? So what do you do? Because now it's like we got to figure out the pecking order. No joke, there's a guy in my high school that... Good grief. He, <laughs> um, I ran across him the other day, and his picture on Facebook is him sitting in the fighter jet, flying it, doing the whole peace sign from the other fighter jet that's taking his picture. The guy's a fighter pilot, okay? And he, I mean, it's Top Gun Tom Cruise, the whole meal deal. He rides the motorcycle, he's got the glasses, all of these, the leather coat, the convertible must. I mean, it is, this is the guy at my high school. He wins, okay? He's the best. There's no one else who can top him. You show up to the, it's like, all right, let's just all compare us to him and see what he says, right? And there's the other guys who are still living with their parents in the basement, you know, playing video games or whatever that is, right? If that's where you gain your identity from and you have to go to your high school reunion to make sure that you are on top or at least somewhere in the top 10 pecking order, right? And again, if you don't think that's true, how many of you before your high school reunion did the whole, I got to lose some pounds before I show up. I got to lose 10, 15, 20, 50 pounds, whatever it is, because I don't want to be seen, perceived. I got to, you know, be at least close to my high school weight. Whatever you're, whatever you're finding your, which is near impossible, okay? Um, whatever you find your identity in and how people are perceiving you, becomes your God. And again, there's nothing wrong with being healthy and wanting to have a good experience in your high school reunion. It's just traumatizing, I believe. Just going back to those things, I, I think they're traumatizing. Uh, oh, man. One other thing. This was worth the price of admission right here. Um, Sorry, it was distracting me. Um, Keller's definition, a new definition of addiction I never heard before, but it, it, it is just solid. His definition of addiction is turning good things into ultimate things. Is there anything that anyone is addicted to that isn't by nature good? Pick something, and it all within within moderation, within appropriateness, within all these other things, is absolutely good in how God created it. But now, for individuals, that that becomes the ultimate thing in their life, they have deified that. That's what they find their identity in, and it will chew you up and spit you out. When good things become ultimate things, that's just awesome. Um... Second thing that kind of gets in the way of relationships with God 
is um, individuals that despise grace. And again, it's my, my belief that most people hate grace. There's two ways to relate to God. One is, model number one is, I've got to be good enough, and if I am finally good enough, then God will come seek me out and adopt me into his family. Because out of all the other people that he could adopt, I want to be, I want to be the kid who looks the cleanest, who has something to offer him, who can do something for God. Ah, isn't that just amazing that you think that you can do that? And so you try to behave in order to gain love. Model number two is, I am obedient, I do good things because I am already loved. It's, um, a lot of people sometimes have the mis misunderstanding that if I enter into a relationship with God, it's like, okay, check, fire insurance, and now I can do whatever the hell I want to do. Literally, I can do whatever the hell I want to do because it's, it's still my choice. That's not how it works. It's like saying, I'm going to get married, and now that I got the ring on my finger, I don't really have to pay attention to what my wife wants, what my spouse needs. I can do whatever I want to do. That is not relationship. True affinitas, true healthy relationship is saying, oh, man, you're part of my life now. What can I do for you? Just because I love you so much, I want to do what you want. I want to do what you want. It is the mutual losing of independence. Back to the last week again. I choose to give up certain rights, not because I have to, because I want to, and I want to enter into that relationship with you. Grace. Grace is the idea that says, you can't earn it, nor do you have to. Here's kind of the, again, the catch-22 in that. You have someone who says, I am good enough. I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't, girl, go with, I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. Okay, all those kinds of things. Um, and now I am finally good enough to be loved. Except what do they have in place? Pride. <laughs> Which kind of sets them back to square one again. It's like, well, shoot, how do I get over that pride? Well, how do I do that? I'm humbly doing everything right. It's, it's, just, it's this kind of unending cycle. We want to take credit for ourselves, and it just doesn't work. So when we can finally say, I have to, I no longer, I choose not to try to be good enough, I'm going to accept that you already want relationship with me, and because of that, I get to return that love towards you, that's when we get the order of things right, and that's what starts to change things. You got a question? Uh, Waited too long, huh? I made you forget. No, I didn't forget, but I guess, so is this another example of experience changing? I'm stuck in where you're exactly talking about, right? I mean, I know the truth of that if, I, if I'm loved and whatever I am is good enough, but how do you change the you know what I mean? Because that's a hard thing to realize yeah. when you've told yourself that. And so if it is experience, what do you, you gave us some examples a couple weeks back of like, figure this out and then do something about it. Well, what do you do about that? Let's close in prayer. <laughs>
halfway through the next page, okay? We're getting right to it. Um, third thing that gets in the way um, is what I call wounded assumptions. And these are things that I see in my office all the time. It's things that sit in refuge all the time. It's what sits in churches across the United States and across the world all the time. Um, it's the elegant lies that we tell ourselves and that I truly believe come from the father of lies. Here's the wounded assumptions that I hear over and over. I'm going to assume that God is mad at me. I'm going to assume that God wants nothing to do with me. I'm assuming that God can't understand my pain. In fact, he probably causes some of my pain. Assuming that God doesn't actually care. He just doesn't. Or assuming that you're too broken or damaged. You are irreparable or irredeemable. Those assumptions that come from deep, deep wounds, and I'm going to suggest probably come from relational wounds because we extrapolate that into our relationship with God. When those assumptions get in the way, they taint everything else. It's kind of like a deal breaker. It's, um, it's, it's, In football, it is the other team, they're allowed to pass, they're allowed to kick, they're allowed to do all these other things, and they're allowed to have 11 guys on the field, right? But for me, the rules are I'm allowed to have one person, and I can't move more than five yards. Now, if I can play the game, and I can stop everyone in those five yards, and me by myself, I can do that, then, then you know, I might, I might score once or twice. You think it's going to happen? It's never going to happen. You actually create these rules for yourself that are, that are hindering and restrictive because you think that somehow um, that's all you are allowed. That's all that you are given permission to experience. And those things become unbelievably heavy and toxic. And uh, <clears throat> the difficulty in it is, again, how to change those belief levels. Um, I'm going to go right back to the experiencing things. And what is the name of this class? Affinitas. What do we heal in? The class is the solution. The people sitting next to you are the medicine. Even though they're imperfect, even though they're frustrating, even though they are still working out their stuff. The relationship becomes therapeutic. And I believe that when we can have that experience with someone who is flesh and blood, then it's like, oh, that's what it feels like. I was um, legitimately scared um, when we were expecting our second child. I had my daughter, and she was as close to perfect as can be, and I loved her with a love that I didn't even know was possible inside of me, and my heart ached for her. And I was, as a parent, legitimately scared that I was not going to be able to love my next child as much. I was going, I kind of ran out of love. I just, I used it all up. He's going to just be stuck with, you know, kind of second best. That's all I got. I was legitimately scared about this until my wife delivered Joseph, that's my second, and it took me about 
10 minutes. And because I already have one to practice with, it's like, okay, this one, I know how to change the diapers. I know how to take care of all this stuff. I'm not afraid of breaking him, you know, like you are with the first one. And as soon as I picked him up and held him, it's like, oh, what was I worried about? It, it's not a, a set amount of love that you're given, and then hopefully you can like spread that out over the over four people so everyone gets only a quarter of your love. It is this exponential thing Thing that I can't explain, but it just leaked out of me. And then we threw two more kids in the mix, and all of them, it's just like, man, this is good. Each one of my kids I love in their own unique way, in their own special way. I can't explain how or why, I just do. My perspective of God was radically shaken, was profoundly shaken once I had children because everything had been conceptual to that point. God loves me as a father. Reading in Matthew, he talks about that phrase that says, um, uh, you, you earthly fathers, when your son wants a piece of bread, are you going to give him a rock? No, you're not going to do that. If he wants fish, you're going to give him a snake? No, 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 no. You love your children. How much more so? I love those four words. How much more so does your heavenly father, who is perfect? If that's as parents, it's like, oh, I get it. I love my kids in this way. And what's remarkable, what's remarkable is my children can be sitting on the floor playing. They're just amazing. They have these little Star Wars figurine guys that, you know, move all sorts of ways. And they've got about a thousand of them. And they do all these epic battles. And they have this one little yellow box. And there is, there's got to be a hundred little tiny black guns. And they all look the same to me. They're just little black pieces of plastic. And so I pull one guy out when I'm sitting playing with them, and they pull out, and I pull out a random gun, and I put it together, and my kids look at me like, Dad, can you be that dumb? That gun doesn't go with that guy. I'm going, how do you know? How do you, well, well, he's because that's some Bobo Fett guy thing, and he's a bounty hunter, and apparently he has to have this gun over here because in this episode he did this thing to this guy. And so, Dad, of course, what are you, dumb? They, that's their world. And I've given up trying to understand their world. But what I have done is I sit back on the couch and I watch them play. And even though they're playing, they're not thinking about me. They're not going, I hope this makes my dad proud. I hope that he loves me more because of the way I'm playing with my Star Wars figurine. They're not, they don't think about that. They don't care. But as a parent, I'm watching them enjoy them being childlike. And it does what? It brings me pleasure. It brings me joy. So one of the questions of how, how do you have a relationship with God? The answer is, love the things that he loves and live. Live well, live fully, live. Don't be afraid. Don't let fears, don't let the set points, don't let all these things take away any of that joy. Don't be afraid of what God's going to do to strike you down. Because when you love what he loves, and what does he love primarily? Yes. When, when you love yourself and are comfortable with yourself and enjoy yourself the way God made you. Again, dogs are fantastic. I love dogs. Okay? Just dogs. I love training dogs. I love messing with dogs. They're just fantastic. A dog doesn't actually know he's a dog. 
he doesn't care he's a dog. And he is bringing glory to God by being as doggy as he can be. When he's slobbering and that drool stuff's going down really good when you're holding a piece of bacon in front of his nose, you know, and he's just loving and looking forward to that and his tail's going about a million miles an hour and knocking everything off the coffee table. He's being as doggy as he can be and God's up there going, yes, that's how I made him. That's awesome. So, how, how you can you be? Because if you do that, it brings God glory. We live in fear. We live in fear that we're not good enough. We live in fear that we're not going to be accepted. We live in fear that we're going to hurt other people or get all over them. That fear makes us hide back to the garden, back to Adam and Eve. Shame. He doesn't want us to hide. He went looking for them. Where are you? Where are you? We're hiding. We're afraid. Was he calling them because he didn't know? Again, God doesn't force himself. He makes lots of invitations. Lots of invitations. Come out. Don't be hidden anymore. Don't hide. I'm not going to force my way onto you. Be seen. Another way to have a relationship with God. And this is terrifying, Okay. I, I, I can't make this any nicer. It's terrifying. But when you sit in front of him with a spirit of openness and it says, God, you know me better than I know myself and I'm no longer going to hide from you. I'm no longer going to make excuses. I'm no longer going to, to deceive myself. I'm no longer going to try to make it, um, up stories and reasons and why. God, you can see me in all of the fears and all the thoughts and all the temptations and all of the mess ups and everything I do. God, you can see me. Now, again, that's not because he doesn't have the information. He already knows all that. It's us changing our posture to sit with him, to be seen by him. We're actually being honest with ourselves. When we do that, lots of things change. It's profound how much changes. And it is terrifying, but worth every minute, every minute. And you grow into it. You learn how to be vulnerable like that. You learn that it doesn't actually kill you, even though you wish it might kill you. You find out that this doesn't actually kill you, and you can finally be seen and finally be known. It's a sacred place. It's a sacred place to sit and be with God. That's some of the hows. Does that make sense? Move yourself into an open posture. We do that every week here, hands up. Leave our stuff there. Be us. Enjoy. Just enjoy you. Enjoy me. Enjoy. Oh, one last thing and then I'll let you go. Yes. Um, because of the nature of God, because he is a spirit, then again, learning that dialect means you might have to practice. For some people, their minds are very, very busy. They're very tangible. They're very concrete. They're very task-oriented. And for those individuals, you might have to learn how to sit and be silent. Be still and know that I am God. Learn how to rest. Um, the act of learning how to meditate. Meditation is a wonderful 
practical, physiological skill set to learn how to do. We do some of that in a very brief way, starting out every week here so far. We move ourselves into a posture of being present, knowing what's going on with our body, learning how to listen. That is a form of real basic meditation, and you start to be able to communicate better with a being who is spirit, not flesh and blood. So that skill set right there, and again, I don't care what personality, I don't care what, what bent you are, you know, if you're more cognitive or more emotional, it, doesn't, does, it transcends all of that. We can all learn how to sit and listen and be. All right? <sighs> Questions? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, but those things that we choose to do, there are a lot of people who make justifications and they, and they maintain a facade of a relationship with God, but they actually live in sin. Yeah. And, um, and God, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. Yeah. That. Yeah, it, it does. Absolutely. Which would go back to that, again, that posture of openness and laying yourself bare before God, saying, this is who I am, this is what I either struggle with, or this is what I believe, or what I'm doing. And for those who want to conform themselves to his nature rather than make him conform to ours, then that naturally, that those sin issues, those things that are resistant to, uh, I'm assuming will be taken care of in kind of that posture. You're right. And whether it's a spiritual relationship with, between us and God or a human relationship, if we are doing things that is directly wounding to the other person, it always gets in the, is in the way of, of any relationship. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Any other questions? And then I will let you go. Next week, questions. If you don't have questions, um, come and just be. Come and enjoy. We might, you know, watch some random movie clips or do something else to fill up the time. Or hear from you guys. All right? So, yes? A book list about affinitas and relationships and stuff like that. I will absolutely try to do that. Is there anything else you guys want me to bring? We already got good cookies. I'm not bringing cookies. The results of your study. The results of the study. Okay. Another series. Another series. I think we got to wait a while. Anything else? Yes, Mitch. Is it true that you're going to be at the men's retreat? Um. Yeah. Yes. Should be should be fun. So. Ladies, sorry, but 
men, we're going to try to figure out some stuff again. I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll see what happens. That's in September sometime, I'm told. So. Last week. Okay, last week in September. I should probably write that down. All right. How about I pray, and then I'll let you guys have your evening to yourself, all right? Father, I pray that each person here tonight can in some way open and bear their soul to you. That they can stand unprotected and unguarded, even though they might be fearful, even though they might be wounded. Again, I believe that you provide actual, literal, physical comfort in those times that are overwhelming to us. And I, I would ask, and I pray, and I know that there are individuals in this room who are going through things that could use and benefit that. And so I humbly but directly ask that you will show up and rock their world. I don't know why you love us, but I'm thankful that you do. Thank you for being not a safe God, but a good God. And in your name, amen. Enjoy your night. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.